all of those things are mercies of God, where God has overcome our sin by His grace, leading us to life, leading us to life in the Spirit. And then for the rest of the five chapters after uh, those 11, we have Paul, in another sense, showing us how the Christian life is transformed as we um, have renewed mind, as we offered our bodies. As we said last week, we give our bodies to God as living sacrifices, and then we give our bodies, ourselves, to the church, and we use our gifts, our talents, our abilities for the sake of the church, for the sake of the glory of God here. And this morning, we come to the topic of, of love and the way that love acts. That love is an action. Let me just, before we jump in, would you just agree with me today that the word love is an overused word in our culture? So many of you would agree with that. In fact, even Time Magazine recently said that it's time to change the meaning of the word love. And just think about the way the word is used. I'm just going to use it from my personal standpoint. So I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my church. I love your family. I love your car. I, I love that color on you. I love the way your hair looks. I always say that to Brother Curtis every Sunday. It's part of our ongoing ritual. Or I love the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, maybe you don't. Maybe I'm not going to say anything about the Florida fans because we can't be Alabama either. So um, we'll, just, we'll just move on from that. But I love the Georgia Bulldogs. I love chicken wings. Um, so we, we use the word love a lot, right? And listen, when I say that I love my wife and I love my kids, it means that I care about them. I love spending time with them. I want what's best for them. But when I say I love chicken wings, it means something completely different. I don't want what's best for chicken wings. I love spending time with chicken wings, but it's a one-sided relationship. They lay their life down, and I'm blessed by their giving of their life away. So just think about that. So when I say I love you, do I mean I chicken wing love you? Do I mean I football team love you? Or do I mean I relational and family love you? According to the dictionary, the word love is a profoundly tender, passionate affection for one another. So in, in other words, the dictionary defines the word love as a noun, as a feeling. I suggest that the Bible gives a different definition. Not so much as a noun, but the Bible describes love as a verb. It's an action. In fact, the very first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 22 too, when the Bible says Abraham loved his son, and because of his love for his son, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. So from the very beginning of love being a picture in Scripture, it involves action, obedience, and sacrifice. Love bears fruit. Love shows something. It's not just enough to say, I love you. Love can be proven. How do we know love can be proven? Because God said in Romans 5.8, or the, God's word says, God proved his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So love bears fruit. Just, just think about how this works. How do you know that an apple tree is an apple tree? Now, that's a stupid question for us to ask because it's like, um, it has apples on it. It's the one that has the apples. So 
Of course, we can say, well, apple tree is an apple because it has apples. But what if you were to take apples and tie them to a pear tree? Does the pear tree now become an apple tree? And of course, we would say, that's not the way it works. And Pastor Jordan would say, that's not the way it works, Scooter. But that's not the way it works. Just because you tie apple trees to a pear tree is not all of a sudden an apple tree. It remains a pear tree because it will bear fruit and they will be pears. So it is with Children of God, with us, the person who has been grafted into Christ will indeed bear fruit as we seek to do the will of God. And part of doing the will of God is loving. In fact, loving him, Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And here's what we know. Every one of us loves. All of us in this room loves. We all do. Yet, apart from Christ, we love the wrong way. Paul says that apart from Jesus, we love in hypocrisy, meaning we love with a two-faced love, which really isn't love at all. It's, it's a love that will only go so far, yet the love of God went all the way. God's love isn't selfish. God's love is sacrificial, so God's love will go further than hypocritical love will ever go. So what I want to do now is I want us to turn to the Word and to look at love in action and we're going to look at verses 9 through 21. And in these 13 verses, it's like Paul has so many different thoughts in his mind. They just all explode, and he just writes them all down. And it's hard to, to get a summary of what in the world he is saying because it's just like everything that's in his heart has just exploded, and he just puts it on paper. So we're going to read it together. You will see what I mean when we read it, and then we're going to try to unpack it together. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. Like I said, the verses will be on the screen for us as well. And beginning at verse 9, it says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this section that ends with the word good. It is a reminder, God, that you are good. That you are good in all your ways. It is a reminder, Lord, that we are called to seek that which is good. Knowing that you will work out all things for good to those who love you. Today, Lord, help us, God, in our time together today to, to understand this love in action. To first of all, understand, God, that this is something that we can never, ever, ever do on our own. We can't do this. Only you in us and through us can love others this way. So we pray that you would help us say, to submit ourselves to you. God, I don't know every need in this room, but you do. So I ask, God, that you would meet every single person right where they are today. 
to bring glory to your name. Speak, O God, for we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. A.L. Huxley, who is an English novelist and critic, once said, It doesn't take much for a person to become a Christian. It only takes all of them. So it doesn't take much for a person to become a Christian, only all of them. The Christian life is the consummate way of living. It's a consuming way of life because God is a consuming fire, meaning he wants all of us. When Jesus said that we come to him through a narrow gate, that's precisely what he meant. It's a narrow way. And paradoxically, our, our lives in Christ don't have latitude in one sense. So we don't come to Christ and then we do whatever we want to do or we live to please ourselves. No, we come to Christ and we live to please him. We come to him and we find the meaning of our life in him. So it's not just doing what we want, it's doing what he wants. And there's freedom in that. So there's freedom for us to now serve the Lord, live for him, do what he would have us to do. And in that, there is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So in the 13 verses we just read, Paul gives us no less than 30 commands, 30 exhortations. According to one theologian, the sentences are suddenly much shorter. Almost all contain a command. Subject seems to change with every verse, sometimes every sentence. This whole section, therefore, gives the impression of a random series of commands with little structure or theme. So what do you do with that? So although these verses cannot be unified around a specific theme, there is a clear call in what we just read for us to be humble, for us to be peaceable, and for us to be loving in our attitude towards others, whether it be Christian or non-Christian. So this morning, in the remaining time that we have, I want us to unpack three pictures or three categories of love in action. What love in action looks like from the child of God, according to uh, the Apostle Paul. The first is this. The first picture of, of love in action is genuine love within the family. Genuine love within the family. When I say family, I don't mean just our our personal family. I mean the family of God. I mean us as a faith family, as a body of believers. And Paul begins in verse 9 by saying, let love be genuine. Just stop there. The first thing I want you to notice, when Paul says the word love, and love is to be genuine, okay, kind of a different way. I want to give you, you Bible nerds real quick, I want to give you a Bible quiz. So when Paul says, I, your love should be genuine, what Greek word for love do you think Paul is using here? So agape love. So ding, ding, ding. He's using that word, agape love. Now, why is that important to anyone other than the ones that are in seminary, the ones that are in, in ministry? Why is that Im important? It's important because up to this point, Paul has never used the term agape love to refer to our love for one another. Throughout all the book of Romans, so far, Paul has used the word agape love only to refer to God's love for us. Now, Paul is taking this term used to describe God's love for us, and he's saying, that's how I want you. That's how God wants you to love others. In the same way that God loves us, we love others. This type of love remains steadfast even when circumstances change or even when that kind of love isn't accepted. It keeps reaching out. It's a love that mirrors God's love for us regardless of our actions, regardless of whether we think we're deserving of it or not. It's a genuine love. For you see, I'm, I'm going to speak to where we are today as a church, and I want you to hear this. 
Love with a hypocrisy is an oxymoron, and it's not real love at all. Yet, sadly, some of what masquerades as love in the Christian life and even in the church is laced with this arsenic of hypocrisy, which means this, churches can be places of phony love. Churches can be places where love is phony. The reason is that we are tempted as believers, so individual believers, we are tempted, maybe even prone, to put forth a picture of ourselves that isn't true of who we are. So if we are putting forth a picture of ourselves that isn't true of us, then we are hypocritical and we can't love anyone genuinely because we're not even loving ourselves genuinely. And so think about this. Please hear this. Jesus cannot and will not help the fake you. Jesus cannot and he will not help the fake you. There is a real Savior who died on a real cross for the real you. For the real you. And only when you expose the real you to him can you receive his help and his love. But once you have received his help and his love, you are able to give his help and his love to others. But it begins by us being real. We have to be real. We have to be able to to see ourselves for what we are and understand that God, a real Savior, died on a real cross for the real you. And then Paul says this, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Which I must admit, that's kind of odd that Paul says, I want you to genuinely love, but I also want you to hate. I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Paul's saying, hey, love well, but also hate. I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense until we realize that part of authentic love is also authentic hate. That's the character of God. God loves what is good, but God also hates what is evil. God hates hypocrisy. He hates unrighteousness. God hates false religion. He hates that. Therefore, we are called to love that which is good and hate that which is Evil, And I would say that one of the greatest problems in the churches today is not related to our intolerance. It's related to the things that we are tolerating. The things that we find ourselves tolerating within the church. And oftentimes, here's what we do. And I'm going to call us out when I say us. Sometimes I'm going to call you out. If we get ourselves in situations where we hear people say things and we say, you know what, I'm going to bring that to the pastor's attention. I'm going to see what he does about it. And if I don't respond the way you think I respond, then you get mad and upset, which really, to be honest with you, it wasn't my place to even respond in the first place. It was your place. And you have tried to put on me what God has called you to do, which is to go to that person who apparently has offended you and love them. And yet we try to go around that, and then we try to bring it to somebody else, and then when they don't respond, then we get upset. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. We need to go to people, and we need to, in love, speak the truth to them. A love that won't speak truth to people is not a love at all. It's not love. If you are refusing to speak truth to someone that you say you love, then you don't love them. Let me say it again. If you are refusing to speak truth to someone that you say you love, you don't love them. What you love is their love, and you're afraid to lose it. You're afraid to lose the love they have for you. Here's the deal. You are afraid of losing that person's affection more than you're afraid of what evil will do to them. It's about time for us to understand evil is way worse 
Evil is way worse than someone's lack of affection for us. Evil will do worse pain than lack of affection ever will. We need to be willing, brothers and sisters, to speak the truth. And then Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What would that look like if we outdid one another in trying to show honor for others? Serve the Lord. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let me sum all those verses up this way. If we love God the Father, we will love the Father's children. If we love God the Father, we will love the Father's children. We will love each other. Even one early church father said this, see how they love one another is what pagans should be saying when they observe the church. Even Jesus said, by this you will know, they will know that you're my disciples if you do what? Love one another. That is our calling, to love one another. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or, as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this is silly. How could you hate, a man, or how can you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this for all my life. His name was me. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I always went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things, those things was that I loved the man. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred that we feel for cruelty or treachery or evil. We ought to hate those things, but hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the person should have done such things and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, some way, that person will be changed. This is what we want for each other in the body. Genuine love, where we love people just the way they are. But let me, let, me, let me stop for a second and say this. For God loves us just the way we are. But God will not let us stay where we are. God loves you just like you are. He loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants to bring you to know him more and to become more conformed to his image. In the same way, we should love people right where they are. Even how they are, we should love them, but bring them and pray that they would see their identity in someone greater than themselves. Genuine love within the family. Oh, that God would help us to do this. The second picture is this, enduring love when under hostility. And this is when we begin to get to this place in this passage today that's not going to make a whole lot of sense for us. Because what we're talking about from here on out, it cannot be done on our own. We can't do it. Enduring love when under hostility. Paul says in verse 12, be patient in tribulation. Our culture today is so impatient. We are, we are a high-speed everything culture, right? We want everything high-speed. We want everything now. And in wanting everything now, it makes it very hard for us to endure with patience in the midst of tribulation. But something happens when we endure tribulation. Something happens within us. 
God does a work in us that can only be explained by him. And then in verse 14, it says this, and please hear this again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What? Our love should be independent of the treatment that we have received from anybody else. They might curse us, we bless. They might hate, we love. They might avenge, we won't. Now that sounds so natural to us, right? <laughs> or not. That is not what we do. Think about this. When you're in traffic and someone cuts you off and then acts like you're to blame for their impatience and they cuss you out and they give you the one finger, your number one salute. What's our first thought in that moment? I know what it is. We roll down our window and we say, bless you. May you be blessed and highly favored. That's what we do, right? Or even if we do that, we're not genuine in it. I mean, the, the point is what we do, like what I did yesterday. Somebody cut me off in traffic right here, pulled right out in front of me. Of course, I haunted them, and I might have said, you idiot, what are you doing? And if that was you, then you were acting like an idiot, and you should have been honked at. But that's how we respond in those moments. We get angry and upset and fight back and push in that way. But what Paul's saying is this, to repay evil with evil is to immediately lose the battle with evil. The only way to defeat evil is by doing good. In other words, if you hate the person who wronged you, that person has won. But here's what we do. We identify evil too closely with the evildoer, and we think in order to get rid of evil, we have to get rid of the evildoer. And so we make it our job to just completely obliterate them, and we feel better about ourselves for doing it. Yet God's word does not call us to destroy. God's word calls us to bless. Again, only through him can we do this. Then verse 15, rejoice. Let me just stop there and say this. When you can't, when you can't rejoice in circumstances, when you have things going on in your lives that you can't rejoice in, you can, you can still rejoice in the anticipation that God is going to do something in those circumstances, through those circumstances, in spite of those circumstances. Listen, on cloudy days when you can't see the sun, the sun is just shining as bright as ever in the galaxy, as a center of it all. And in the same way, when we are confounded, when we are just um, up to our necks and even up to the top of our heads with circumstances that we can't figure out, the Son of God is still shining just as brightly as when we have everything figured out. We have to come to understand, brothers and sisters, we are able to rejoice. I don't know if that's what life looks like for you. Are you able to rejoice? Are you able to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances? Are you able to rejoice in all things? Oh, I pray that you are, that you can. But then he says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sometimes it's harder for us to rejoice with others who are rejoicing than it is for us to weep with those who weep. And why do I say that? Because sometimes it gets hard when somebody gets something we want for us to actually be happy for them. Because the sinful desire is, I'm not going to be happy for them. They got what I wanted. I wanted that. Why did they get it? God, why'd you give it to them? And we begin to get upset at God for not giving us what we think we deserve. Brothers and sisters, here's the deal. A sign of growing in grace is that we're able to rejoice with the successes 
of other people. And before you're quick to say, well, they got something I wanted, God's able to bless you with it. Just because God's blessing someone else doesn't mean he's not able to bless you. But God might say, I'm not going to because I have something else for you. We have to learn to trust him in the midst of all of that. And then verse 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Not, not every problem that we go through can or will be resolved. But we must understand, according to Paul here, that you are, we are in charge of our response. Other people don't make us respond the way we respond. We choose our responses. So we can't blame other people for the way we respond and say, well, I, just, I just get um, so irate, irate and I just lose my mind every time they're around. Well, you're choosing how you respond, even in the midst of maybe their craziness. So just to recap here, to be able to love when under hostility, Paul gives us two tools to use. First is we sympathize and then we harmonize. Let me just recap it again. Sympathize. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's sympathize. Entering into the emotions of others. If they're up, if they're down, if they're laughing, if they're crying, if they're disappointed, if they're elated, you enter into that. You enter into it. Let me give you a picture of, of what that looks like. Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? You guys know it. It was always my go-to verse for all the Bible memory verse challenges. That was my first one. One point was guaranteed. Jesus wept. John 11.35. Good one. There you go. Here's your, here's your sticker. You're like, yes, I got one. But this verse has more. There's so much more to it than just being a great verse for our memory verse challenges. There is so much within these two verses. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Why did he cry? He shows up at his friend whom he loved, his funeral, Lazarus' funeral. He shows up, and he's not crying because Lazarus is dead, because Jesus knows in five minutes, Jesus is going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to bust forth out of the tomb like the Easter bunny, just bouncing out. He knew that was about to happen, so he's not weeping because he lost his friend. He's weeping because he looks over, and the other two, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are weeping. And in so doing, Jesus enters into their sympathy. He weeps with them. And guess what? When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he rejoices with them. Jesus sympathizes because he's a sympathizing one. It's who he is. And we're to sympathize with others. And then we're also to harmonize. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Always do what is honorable. Someone has well said, and maybe you can relate to this, I could live this Christian life with no problems if it weren't for people. Can anybody relate to that? I could live this Christian life with no problems whatsoever if it weren't for other people. Other people get in the way of me living the Christian life out the way I want to. Years ago, a book was written entitled Irregular People. Now, just the title makes me smile because I know some of them. But in the book, the declaration is that every one of us has at least one person that we would classify as an irregular person. It's the person who has a knack of wounding us every time they see us. When you're with them, you seem to always 
Or they, they seem to always say the wrong thing. They ruin your day. Your emotions are constantly in a state of flux when they're around. They're so insensitive. They're an irregular person. And the second I say that, I know some of you are already thinking of people in your minds who are those people to you. And you're thinking about things they've said to you, ways they've, they've hurt you. We're reliving that. Yet the book also says that each one of us is also an irregular person to someone else. So not only do we have irregular people in our lives, we are also irregular people to other people, meaning that when someone was thinking about their irregular person, they might have been thinking about you. While you were busy thinking about somebody else, somebody else might have been thinking about you. And in this moment, brothers and sisters, we need to ask God to allow us to be people of peace, and people of encouragement, when it is so easy to fight back and it's so easy to be people who, who just live in hostility that God would allow us to be people who, who stoop down as low as he calls us to stoop for the sake of bringing his love to others. We should never say that task is beneath me or that person is beneath me because Jesus did not consider you or myself as beneath him when he came here. And one of the signs that the gospel is transforming us, please hear this, one of the signs that the gospel is transforming us is that we will associate with and love people that we used to be. We will associate with and love people that we used to be because part of the hypocrisy of Christianity is you and I, the longer we've been saved, we look at people that were just like us before we were saved and we say, I can't believe they can't get their lives together. What in the world's wrong with them? And we refuse to associate with them because we're busy judging them for being exactly like we were before we met Jesus. And it's the highlight of our hypocrisy that here we are, having been them, being saved by grace, now different, not because we're great, but because God's great, to look down on other people who don't know who we know. Oh, that God would allow us to see people as he sees them. Enduring love when under hostility, which leads us to the last picture, and this is when it gets tough. The last picture is this, prevailing love towards our enemies. Prevailing love towards our enemies. And now, most of you are in here, are basically, I know what you're thinking right now, Mike, it doesn't matter what you say from here on out, I'm not going to listen. Because we have a special way of dealing with people that we call enemies, right? Deep down inside, we have all thought about what it would be like, what it would feel like to get some form of payback on those who have mistreated us or harmed us. Whether those enemies are political or national or cultural or personal or criminal, we, we all want to see the wicked come to justice. We might even have fantasized about what it would be to basically bring physical harm upon that individual that caused harm upon us. And we live in a world where revenge is entertaining. Think about the movies that you have seen or the books that you have read that are based on revenge. They can be entertaining, and they can even be exciting, but that is, isn't and not the way of Jesus. Paul says in verse 19, hear this, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And we go, what? Like, what does God want me to do here? And here's where we see that God and God alone has the right to avenge. 
That's not saying that we can't hope for or even work towards seeing evildoers come to justice in this life. But ultimately, we have to trust God to do that in the life to come, and revenge can't be our option. In fact, revenge isn't healthy. The Chinese war strategist Sun Tzu, who wrote the famous book, The Art of War, once said this, Before you embark on a journey of revenge, you should first dig two graves. Before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves, one for the person you're going after and one for yourself, because you are dying to yourself and doing that. Again, there's a better way that involves trusting our good and righteous judge. Martin Luther once declared, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. This day and that day. And in case you don't know what it means, he says this. The Christian lives in view of God's great mercy in Christ Jesus today, this day. And he or she also looks ahead to that day in which judgment will be executed perfectly and our salvation will be experienced gloriously. Because of that day that's coming, we can leave vengeance to God. He gets the last word anyway. So Paul's declaration to us is never, ever, ever get in the judge's chair. Don't get in his chair, not against your spouse who was insensitive or uncaring towards you, not against your sibling who is always annoying to you, not against that person who is at work that spread nasty or vicious, untrue rumors about you, not against the parent that you think has disrespected you or the, the kid that is constantly making your life unfairly hard, not even against the, the person who committed a crime against you. Don't take revenge. Don't get in the judge's chair. Leave vengeance to God. Listen, yes, Scripture says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There is no time ever in Scripture where God says, but I'm going to let you handle this one. There is no place in Scripture where that ever happens. And then Paul says this at the end of verse 20. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And finally, we're like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Let, let me do that. I want to heap burning coals on my enemy's head. Finally, Paul, you're making sense. And then we realize that many Bible commentators think that Paul here was referring to an Egyptian custom in which people would actually put burning coals on their head as a sign of repentance. So if that be true, what Paul is saying is when you love your enemies, there could be a chance that your enemies come to repent and come to the God, um, come to God's love who has loved you and allowed you to love them. And that becomes the win. That becomes the win for us. Yes, it doesn't make sense in our earthly ideas. It doesn't make sense at all. But this is the picture of gospel love. And then Paul ends this way, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As sons and daughters of God, we need to live on the level of God, meaning we return good for evil. Anyone can return good for good, or anyone can return evil for evil. But the only way we will ever overcome evil is with good. And even if our enemy isn't converted, even if our enemy doesn't come to us and say, I'm sorry, even if our enemy doesn't change, we can take comfort in knowing that if we love them, we'll change. We'll be the ones to change. The change will happen in us. Whether that makes sense to us or not. Oh, to God that we would come to understand that 
This is the love that God has put forth for us. And in closing, I want to say something to some that I believe some in here and some watching online will absolutely relate to. For there are some in this room, there are some listening right now, even online, who have been hurt, whether it be from people outside the church or maybe even from people inside the church. And therefore, because you have been hurt, you strongly guard your heart. I mean, you guard your heart. Maybe you're even at the point where you refuse to give any love away other than maybe a small circle that you have placed around you because every time you give love away, you get burned, you get hurt. So you build up this wall of isolation. In fact, 2020 for you, the year of isolation was a great year for you because you loved every minute of it. Because this is the life you have built, a life of isolation. Yet what you don't realize is isolation is actually a prison. It's a prison. You don't want to be hurt anymore. You don't want to be vulnerable ever again. So you refuse to show love at all. And I'll be honest with you. I've been hurt more times than I care to even mention, especially in the ministry. Hundreds of times in the ministry of loving people, serving people, and have those people that you spent the most time with hurt you the most. And in those moments, the enemy comes to me just like he comes to you and says, stop loving them. Stop it. They're not worth it. And every time, God also comes and he says, love them again and again and again and again and again. That's what we just read. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this. And we're going to put it on the screen, although it came a little uh, smaller than I thought it was going to come. So hopefully you can see it. If not, I'm going to read it to you. But here's what he writes, and this is so powerful. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Let me say this, brothers and sisters, the only place outside of heaven that you are safe from being hurt by relationships is in hell. The only place outside of heaven that you're safe from being hurt outside of relationships with people is in hell. In this life, brothers and sisters, we're going to be hurt by people. In this life, we're going to have to be vulnerable. But here's the beauty of it. Romans 5, 5 says that God, through the Holy Spirit, pours his love in our hearts. And he pours his love in our hearts so that we will pour out. And as we pour out and give love to other people, whether it be within this faith family, whether it be those who are treating us cruelly, or whether it be our enemies, as we pour that love out, God gives us more. And we pour more out and he pours more in. And we pour more out and he pours more in. And God is just standing by waiting to pour his love into our hearts. And the problem is with some of us, it got, God hasn't poured his love in our hearts in a while. Because we haven't given it out. We haven't poured it out. We haven't given it to those here. We haven't given it to those who treated us wrong. We haven't given it to our enemies. Today I pray that you would receive God's love afresh and anew. And that you would be willing 
to trust him enough to give it away. To give it away. Listen, again, I don't know why you're here, and I don't know what's going on in your life, but God does. And he's more than able to meet you right where you are. That's the beauty of our God. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call our band forward and enter into this time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is that God is telling you that you would do it. And let's pray together. Father, we come before you and Lord, we thank you for your love for us that makes no sense. That you proved your love for us while we were yet in our sin, while we were loving sin more than loving you, you sent your son. Lord, in fact, your word says that you loved your enemies because we at one time were your enemies. You loved those who were hostile towards you because we at one time were hostile towards you. Lord, you loved those who ran away from you and wanted nothing to do with you, which was us at one time. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for pouring your love in our hearts. Help us, God, by your strength, by your power, by your spirit to be able to love those around us within the family of faith, God, using, as we said last week, our gifts, talents, abilities, Lord, to serve one another. While at the same time, God, be able to bless those who curse us. It's not natural. It's supernatural. But do that. Help us to love our enemies so that we can pray, God, save my enemy. God, bring my enemy to to you, that they would come to know you, to know you as I know you, to experience what I have experienced of you. Lord, whatever it is that you're telling us to do in this moment, help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.